Hello, my name is Chris Hefner. I'm the pastor of Wilkesboro Baptist, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this message from Wilkesboro Baptist Church in Wilkesboro, North Carolina. For more information and resources, visit wilkesborobaptist.org. Here's one of the main reasons why we're doing this. I fully believe that God has asked of us uh, to love Him with everything that we are. And that includes loving Him theologically. I know many of you in this room, you're here tonight, you come on Sunday mornings, you're familiar with the idea of loving God by obeying Him in some kind of spiritual way. You know it's loving uh, to cook a meal for somebody when uh, a family member has died. You know it is loving and it is right to uh, care for somebody in the community when they're hurting, to make a phone call to somebody who's been sick, to visit somebody in the hospital, uh, to care for a child, to teach a Sunday school class. You know those things are loving, and that, that those are right, and those are true expressions of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But God said to us that we're to love him with our minds as well. In other words, God has given us as humans a great capacity to use the brains that he's given us to really know about him and know about the world in which we live. And I'm afraid that if we don't engage the faculties he's blessed us with to know about him as much as we can, then I'm not sure we're loving God as faithfully as we could love God. One of the stories I tell to our Bible college uh, students on a regular basis, every quarter as they come back, back and forth, it, it comes from this book, J.P. Moreland, he wrote a book entitled Love God with All Your Mind. And one of his professors in college, who was an atheist, he was a skeptic, he did his best job trying to de-Christianize students as they came into the secular university that J.P. Moreland attended. And he found out a little bit more about this professor's story. This professor had grown up in church, had been around Christians his whole life, and as this professor left his home to go to a secular university to study, he became uh, aware of many of the challenges and the questions that surrounded Christianity. And if you don't know, over the last 2,000 years, skeptics and heretics and unbelievers have challenged Christianity uh, on a number of fronts, and we could list dozens and dozens of those, raise questions and controversies and issues. And so J.P. Moreland's professor went back to his pastor and said to his pastor, here are some questions I'm having. I'm not sure about my faith. What should I do? And the pastor looked at him and said, just believe. You just need to have a little stronger faith. And that was not a sufficient answer uh, for this young man. And he ended up rejecting his Christian heritage altogether and intentionally spent the rest of his academic life trying to convince others of the error of Christianity. Here's why I'm telling you that story. Because as we explore Christian theology from a biblical perspective and try to understand what it is that God wants us to grasp, I think that we can use our minds uh, a little better than maybe we have in the past. I think we can be challenged a little bit, be stretched a little bit, And I don't think that's going to hurt us. I certainly don't think it's going to hurt our faith. I'll talk about that a little bit more on Sunday when we work through Abraham and Isaac there in Genesis chapter 22. 
But uh, what we're going to deal with tonight is the subject of revelation. Uh, on your handout, I've got revelation is an unveiling. It is to make known. So when you look at the book of the Bible, the book of revelation, it is the book of unveiling. It's uh, apocalyptic in nature, and God is revealing to John what it is he's planning to do and what it is he's doing in the world. And, and that's not what our focus is tonight. We're not going to deal with the book of Revelation in terms of the, the last book of the Bible. We're going to deal with the subject of Revelation, which is God making himself known to us. We say this about being a Christian and a follower of Jesus. We do not know anything about God that God has not revealed to us. It, it is not within our capacity as humans to grasp truths about God unless he chooses to disclose those truths in a variety of ways. And he does disclose those in a variety of ways. And we're going to look at what those are. Re Revelation, and this is the first blank there, and then we're going to work on four different statements of what Revelation is. Revelation is first personal. Personal. That means that God made us in his image so we can know him. One of the reasons God reveals himself and one of the reasons that revelation is personal is because God wants us to know him. In other words, it, it, it is not some kind of um, theology, is not some heady uh, subject that is only for the skilled or the trained or the academic. No, theology is for every person who's been made in God's image. God has made every person, every individual on planet earth capable of knowing him and he's revealed himself in such a way that his revelation is personal. It's relational. It's a way that we can know God, know about him, and know who he is, and understand who he is. Secondly, revelation is cognitive. And, and, and that's just simply saying that, that we can work through who God is in our minds. It's not like we have, to, we have to dumb down our Christianity in order to know God. I, I appreciate Christian hymns and Christian music and how they help us understand God. But, but what we don't want to do is allow our Christianity to be mere feelings. Okay? Your, your Christianity is not as strong or as deep as you feel like it is. Do you get that? It's not as strong and as deep as you feel like it is. It's as strong and as deep as God says it is. And there's a distinction there. So revelation is cognitive. It's not just what we feel. It's what we can grasp and understand and work through. And that's part of the reason for this particular class and also for the textbook that I've encouraged you to read. Thirdly, revelation is progressive. God's revelation is progressive. Now, uh, don't get mixed up with that word in a political sense. Uh, it's not, we're not talking about progressive in, a, in, a, in, in politics. Progressive simply means that God reveals himself through a process over a period of time. And if you think about how the Bible has come to us, it's come to us over a period of 1,600 years, uh, 40 different authors, beginning with Moses and the Pentateuch. And simply what it means that, that Revelation is progressive, it means that Peter knew more about who God was than, say, Moses did. It's not that Moses' knowledge was inaccurate. It's just that Moses' knowledge was not completely fulfilled. It's simply because Moses is seeing God from an Old Testament perspective, and he didn't have the benefit of the prophets, and he didn't have the benefit of the history of Israel, and he didn't have the benefit of the New Testament. And so that revelation is progressive simply means that you and I today 
living in 21st century America, with all of the history of theology that we have, with the entire Bible that we have, we're held accountable in a very real sense for what we should and must know about God. Because we don't have a lack of information. We, we have reached the zenith of how theology has progressed, at least in terms of the scope and sphere of human existence today. I know that we're going to know God in a much more glorious and wonderful capacity that day when we meet Him in heaven. I realize that, but as far as here, there's nothing left for, to be revealed that, that, that we need to understand in order to know God for how He's revealed Himself to us. So Revelation is progressive. That's one reason why when you look at places in the Old Testament, they, there are situations and circumstances that raise serious questions for how well that person knew God. In fact, we, we noticed this a little bit on Sunday, this past Sunday, when we dealt with Noah's ark story. The Bible says that God relented and was sorry that he made man. And, and, and if we're not careful, we read that and we say, well, that, that bothers me. Because if God is sovereign and he knows everything... Didn't he know he was going to do that when he created man and created the earth? And, and how, do we, how, how do we work through that? Well, progressive revelation helps us make sense of that. Because what Moses knew about that story as God revealed it to him uh, is only what God revealed to him in that moment. We have the privilege of looking back over the other uh, you know, 65 books of the Bible and comparing and, and letting Scripture interpret Scripture to recognize that that doesn't mean God uh, decided on a whim, okay, I really don't like the people I made and I'm going to destroy them, or I'm sorry that I made them in the sense that he didn't know what he was going to do. It simply reflects the fact that God was disappointed in the fact that man had every opportunity to know him, and yet man chose to reject him and live in wickedness. So Revelation is progressive. Uh, finally, Revelation is not exhaustive. We can know God truly, but we cannot know God exhaustively. We, we just need to remember that. God exceeds who he is, exceeds our ability to wrap everything around him. Well, when we get to the doctrine of the Trinity, this will become abundantly clear. We, we believe it, the Bible teaches it, but the Bible doesn't give us the answers to that exhaustively. In other words, it doesn't say everything that could be said or explain to us exactly how God does some of the things that God does. And that should drive us to a place of humility. There are some things that we're going to have to wait until heaven, till we recognize, until we understand. So revelation, biblical revelation, is not exhaustive. Now, revelation can be divided into two major categories. We're going to spend the most of our time tonight on the first category, which is general revelation. The second category is special revelation. General revelation is seen in nature, history, and humanity. And we'll unpack those uh, in just a moment. General revelation is seen in nature, history, and humanity. Special revelation, and we'll go ahead and define this, and then we'll walk through some passages of Scripture. Special revelation precedes the Bible. Now, that, that's simply saying that uh, when God appeared to Noah, or when God appeared to Abraham or when God appeared and spoke to Jacob or to Joseph or whoever it was in the Old Testament, that was revelation in that moment, in that time, in that occurrence. And yet, what was, was recorded for us was what Moses recorded years after the fact. 
Okay, so the revelation of God to Abraham, Moses, excuse me, Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph, and the other patriarchs preceded what we have in terms of text and scripture. When God appeared to Moses, that was revelation. That was God revealing Himself, say in the burning bush, and we'll deal with that story in a few weeks on a Sunday morning. Or when God spoke to Noah and gave him, Moses, excuse me, gave him the Ten Commandments on that on the mountain that day. That is revelation. So in that sense, Revelation precedes Scripture. Uh, but the product of Revelation is Scripture, and we'll get there in just a moment. So the, the, the Revelation precedes the Bible is through Jesus. Hebrews 1, verse 1. God spoke in many ways in the past through prophets and through priests and in many uh, elements and many events and many situations. But in these last days, God has chosen to speak through Jesus Christ. Revelation is ultimately seen in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the declaration of God to us. Uh, the, the book of John tells us that, that Jesus declares God to us. So Jesus is the, the primary agent of revelation, the means of revelation. And the Bible is the product of God's revelation. So in the next few weeks, after tonight, what we're going to do is look at special revelation and why it is and how it is that we can... Count on the fact that Scripture is truly uh, a revelation of God to us and how that gives us authority and gives us direction and understanding. But let's look at general revelation. So general revelation is different than special revelation. General revelation is that revelation of God through things outside of Scripture. So nature, for example. You may have heard the term natural theology. If you read through Introducing Christian, Christian Doctrine, you will come across that terminology. Natural theology. What is that? Well, that's what we can know about God by looking around us. Say, so where, where do we find that? Well, if you will, look with me in uh, Psalm chapter 19. Psalm 19, uh, verse 1, reads this way. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor their words, whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Like a strong man runs his course with joy, its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. General revelation is how God said, here's who I am, and creation declares that. Uh, nature shows us that God is, that God exists, that God put things together. Let me give you an, an interesting observation uh, about that, and we'll skip to that next little statement. General revelation is seen in nature, history, and humanity. Seen in nature, but one of the ways it's seen in nature, and one of the ways it's seen in history, is an overlap. Have you ever wondered why it is that most people on planet Earth worship some kind of God. Now, we live in 21st century enlightened America. And so if you pay attention to uh, National Geographic Channel or Discovery Channel or pay attention to uh, lots of uh, philosophers, you pay any attention to that, then you're going to get the impression that a lot of people don't believe that God ever existed and God ever created anything. And that, that takes place. There's certainly those there, and we will address those in, in, uh, in time. But if you think about the nature of human history, there have only been a few small segments of people. Uh, maybe Greek philosophy would count 
possibly some in far eastern uh, uh, philosophies that might count, that did not have a god or gods that they submitted to or worshipped. You go all the way back to the ancient world. They had all these different religious expressions and faiths. Go to the Greek world. They had all these different religious expressions and faiths. Same thing for the Roman world. The, the world in which Christianity came into was a world of, of a plurality of religious expressions. Even today on planet Earth, the vast majority of people on planet Earth worship some sort of God they believe is a deity that either created or had a hand in the creation of the world. That's universal. Why is that? Well, God tells us why that is. If you will, turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 1. General revelation. Notice this. 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What's the truth they suppress? Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Notice what they did. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God... For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Here's what Paul says. Paul says the general revelation that God created, that God spoke the world into existence, that God designed things, uh, is evidence that he exists and it makes us accountable to him. He said here's how we know we're accountable to him. Because when you look around... People have consciously, he says consciously, gives that implication, they chose to suppress the truth, and they did so by putting something else in God's place. Chose to worship the sun or the moon, or if you go into ancient Egypt, they worshiped cats. I can't imagine anybody worshiping a cat. But some of you worship your cats. I've joked before, dogs have owners, cats have staff. Dogs worship their owners. Cats are worshipped by their owners. <laughs> I mean, cats give you... Sorry, I'll digress. But in all, sin, in all sincerity, and if you're a cat owner, please forgive me. If I have offended you, I, I, I beg of your forgiveness in this moment. But in all seriousness, ancient Egypt is an example. Ancient Rome is an example. Ancient Greece is an example. The ancient polytheistic religions that Israel entered into Canaan with where Baal was worshipped and Molech was worshipped, all of them took an aspect of nature or a part of nature and put it in the place of deity and said, we're going to worship this because we can touch it and we can feel it and we can see it and we can, we can, we can have some kind of knowledge of it in, in some kind of visible way. And what Paul says in Romans 1 is that's an indication that, that those individuals suppressed what they should have known what they should have submitted to, rather, that God is and that God exists, and they put something else in its place. And that is still happening today. It's happening over and over all across the world, in Hinduism, in Islam, in, in uh, animistic faiths that exist in, in, in Africa, in um, uh, Buddhism. They're supplanting the one true God with something else 
that they're more comfortable with. And that's really the bottom line is, you're going to worship something if you exist as a human. You're going to. It will happen. You are going to put something in the place of worship in your life. But God is the only one that deserves to be there. And what Paul says is that nature is a declaration of God's existence and that we should worship Him. So nature is a part of general revelation. We've talked about history, at least in the history of religious expressions, but there are many other ways that history is, uh, is general revelation. Uh, just, just by extension of the fact that Israel exists as a nation on planet Earth today is, an, is, an, is something that can be observed, and you don't need the Bible to observe that. It's extra-biblical. The Bible certainly affirms it, but Israel, that Israel exists, and that they're a cho- God's chosen people, and that they still have a nation, and that they're in a place is a reflection of God's intervention in history. And that is not necessarily something we derive, or we have to derive, from the Bible. Here's another uh, element of general revelation. Humanity, or, or conscience. The the simple way to look at it is this. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, the Bible says, God said, let us make man in what? Our image. Now, secularists and naturalists would like to tell you that you are an evolved ape. We are are nothing more than a species of animal. We're we're much more than an animal. Much more. We, We might be mammalian in the sense of of the way that we breathe and walk around, but we're much more than an animal. The last time I checked, I did not, I've not found an animal that knew right from wrong. I've not found an animal that can do a math equation. I've not found an animal that could paint a picture. I've not found an animal that could engage in a discussion, no matter what the new movie Dr. Doolittle says. They don't have language like we have. They don't think through things like we do. Why is that? Because we're different. Humanity is unique. Even the fact that secular thinkers, or religious thinkers for that matter, can think about that there's a God who exists, or that there's a God who doesn't exist, is a rational um, experience. In other words, they are using their brains to make arguments about what they think is real, which is the subject of ontology, or how they know what is real, which is the subject of epistemology, which are both uh, grounded in theology, or at least they're, they're intersecting disciplines with theology. And they make these discussions and arguments and ideas. And you know what that reflects? That reflects the God that made them. Over and over and over again, it reflects the God that made them. One reason I would say that there has to be a God in the world is because you exist. So you're not God, but let me tell you, you you are a beautiful person who has a rational mind, who can turn out art and music and things that we know is beautiful and good. Where did we get that from? How did that develop out of evolution? In what other sphere of life could that have come from? As far as a conscious... Uh, origination. It can't unless there's a God who has personality and creativity and rationality and morality behind that. And, and so that's not certainly affirmed in Scripture, but we can know that outside of Scripture. Meaning that general revelation is what we can know outside of Scripture about who God is. And the Bible makes it expressly clear, and we'll talk about this in our takeaway section, that uh, general revelation is vastly important. It matters. It matters for a whole lot of reasons. It's important for us to grasp and understand. Now, special revelation. 
Special Revelation is where we're going to spend the next few weeks. Special Revelation is the Bible. It is God's specific revealing of himself so that we will know who he is. If you go back to Psalm 19, and, and by the way, let's, let's say you don't read Introducing Christian Doctrine. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm, I, it's, not, it's not required reading. It's helpful, but it's not required reading. But, but let's say you want to read some uh, between now and next week, then read the rest of Psalm 19, because Psalm 19 transitions from general revelation to special revelation. The psalmist moves and says, the law of the Lord is perfect. And then he talks about how the law of God, the words of God, drive us in our understanding of who he is. And Paul does the very same thing throughout the book of Romans. He talks about general revelation and how general revelation makes us accountable. And then he goes on to declare who God is in the law in chapters 2 and 3 and how God's law through Jesus Christ is an opportunity for us to be made righteous. In other words, the Bible is God's special revelation to us. Now, God is revealed through Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate declaration of who God is. He's the perfect declaration of who God is. But let me ask you a question. How do you know about Jesus? Through the Bible. We don't know anything specific about who God is apart from Scripture. Okay? I mean, we, we might know that He's a creator. We can be held accountable for that. But what we know specifically about God's holiness and about our sinfulness and about Jesus and the cross, that comes to us not from uh, from a testimony of an apostle who was an eyewitness, at least not in a personal sense. We no longer have Paul or Peter standing here saying, I saw this happen. We have Paul and Peter writing it down and saying, this is what I saw happen. We have the testimonial evidence through Scripture. And so Scripture... Is the, is the basis for how we live our Christian life. Erickson put it this way in, in the textbook, chapter, page 14, excuse me. Because evangelicalism, and that's where we fall, because evangelicalism is clear that its source is the Bible, it does not suffer the fluctuations of opinion regarding the relative place of experience or tradition, nor does it debate whether religion's primary focus is feelings or ethical activity. To make short on that, here's why theology matters. When you step outside of the context of church and you either watch television or you watch political engagements or you enter into the academic setting and listen to college professors or or you even pay attention to just newscasters, it doesn't matter. They're going to give you uh, moral consensus or moral statements on all sort of issues. And if you paid any attention over the last 30 years, the moral consensus of our nation has shifted over and over again. I mean, 50 years ago, it was offensive to put a woman's shoulder on a TV screen. And today, it's pornographic. And it doesn't even need to be pornographic, right? I mean, the moral codes have shifted. Right? I mean, in our, in our society. And, and things that used to be clear that were wrong, or at least said that were wrong, are now clearly the opposite. Not only are they not wrong in our contemporary society, they're the things that we ought to uh, prop up and expose in a healthy way and promote as right morality. And, and that's troubling. It should be troubling for us as Christians. And here's one of the main reasons why. Because our moral codes... Our ethical behavior do not change. 
Because our moral codes and our ethical behavior do not arise from our personal opinions or our comfort level or what we like or what is in our taste. See, it arises from a Bible that is timeless and it arises from God's statements that are eternal and it arises from a moral code that God originated that is not going to change. See, this book... The interpretations of this book, and we'll talk about this as we move forward in weeks to come. People interpret this book as if it's changing, but this book has not changed. What God said thousands of years ago goes for today. And, and really, that should comfort us. Now, now certainly that is going to set us up in conflict with contemporary morals and ethics and values. And it should set us up, but, but just so you know, it always has. Okay, don't think that 21st century America is the first group of Christians that have been, um, have been at, at odds with the ethical values of society. In fact, the first Christians were at odds with the ethical values of society. I mean, uh, they, they were as sexually amoral in Rome as they ever were, as they ever are in 21st century American culture. And you know, you know what? Paul said he still preached the gospel and called sin, sin, and here's the way that we live our lives. I mean, the Bible is always going to be in conflict with the moral codes of the surrounding culture. Just will. Now, that's going to put us as Christians in a minority. But there's, some, there's something to be encouraged by, though. We might be in the minority when you put the numbers together. But we're not in the minority when you recognize where the moral truth is comes from that the bible doesn't change is incredibly encouraging why is that because i don't have to come up with what i think about every issue that's shifting today i just need to discover what god thinks about the issues as they stand in other words i don't have to be bright i don't have to be brilliant i i might need to be a little bit courageous and so might you but the the statements are already made the truths have already been revealed. They've already been declared. And really what that does for us as Christians, yes, it's going to make us stand out. Yes, we're going to be ignored or marginalized or whatever else you want to call it. But I'm telling you, we don't have to rely on someone else's opinion. See, here's the other tension point, And this is where we're going to get to in the coming weeks as we work through the authority of scriptural revelation, special revelation, how we got the canon and why it matters that we believe text in verse and that it's infallible and inerrant. It, because uh, the beauty of that for us as Christians is that gives us confidence that what we believe didn't come from the mind of a man or a woman. No offense to really bright people. There are some really bright people on planet Earth. There are some really brilliant people on planet Earth. But do you know that nearly every religious philosophy, religious ideology and every philosophy has its ground in the intelligence or lack thereof of some person? It just does. You can draw it all back, Confucius with Confucianism, uh, Islam with Muhammad. I mean, going down the line, Mormonism with, with uh, Joseph Smith, and among others. I mean, go all the way down the line. And you know what's amazing about that? That because it comes from one person, evolution with Darwin, I mean, you can go all the way, to, because it comes to one person, it, it's as if the world would turn on the intelligence of that one individual. 
Folks, none of us are that smart. None of us are that brilliant. I don't have it all figured out. But I know someone who does. And he's not a man. At least he's not a man like you and I. He's God. He, he designed everything. In other words, the benefit for us as Christians is, is our philosophy of life, our way of living, our theology doesn't rest on the brilliance of our theologians, on the clarity of our pastors, on, on, the, on the intelligence of our church members. It rests on God who spoke and what he gave to us in his word. Now, some of those other things matter. They're important. There's certainly things that you ought to think about and work through. But it, it, it takes away a burden for us to have to figure things out. It, it really encourages us or inspires us to look at what God has already said. Uh, let me give you four takeaways, and then we'll take some time in prayer. Takeaway number one from Revelation. Here's a beautiful thing, folks. We can know God. God knows everything about you. The scripture says he knows how many hairs are on your head. For some of you, that you have more hairs than others of us. But God knows you. Okay? He knows everything about you. There's nothing in your life that surprises him. You may have secrets from people in this room. You may have secrets from people in, this fam- in your family. You don't have secrets from God. He knows everything. But... Do you realize that because God revealed himself through his word that we can know him? You realize that God wants you to know him. He wants you to hear what he says through the pages of scripture. He wants you to know his heart. He wants you to know his mind. He wants you to know him. And he's revealed himself so that we can. We can know God. Uh, Here's a a troubling statement, but nonetheless true. General revelation is sufficient for judgment, but not for salvation. I think we'll have time to unpack that as we move forward um, in in coming weeks. But notice what Paul said there in Romans chapter 1, and he would go on to list a whole host of sins that then God would turn uh, idolaters over to, and God would hold them accountable. God holds them accountable. Here's what that means, is that God is both right and just for judging anyone on planet earth for their rejection of him. Because while we may long for, um, you know, God to be nice and kind to people who may not have heard the gospel, that that, that, that may be uh, something that's within our hearts that we desire, and we'll work through that particular uh, philosophy or that theological issue in coming weeks. We may long for that. Um, God is supremely holy, and we're not. And so what, what puts us under judgment is not our knowledge, cognitive knowledge of what we find from Scripture, but what puts us under judgment is the fact that we're sinners and that every single person on planet Earth has rejected God's right to rule over him or her. Now, whether you did that by joining to another ideology or religious system in your youth, you did that. You put something or someone or some religious philosophy in the place of God at some point in your past. And you said, I'm going to do this. And God said, no, you're not. And he chased you. And he drew you. And he forgave you. And he redeemed you. And that's why you're here today. You're here because you're forgiven and redeemed and cleansed. But people on planet Earth have put things in God's place. And Paul says that 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 general revelation is sufficient for judgment but not salvation. Meaning that, that, that we can't come to faith in God by just looking around at the world and saying, God created. Now, now that can drive us to something else. 
And, and it's driven many, many cultures and many, people, many other people to something else. And you know what happens when those cultures are driven to, that, to something else, something beyond what they, what they have heard to be true? God sends a messenger. He sends a missionary. At Rome, Acts 4.12 says, There's no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved but the name of Jesus. Paul says in Romans 10, to can kind of conclude, the, not conclude, but continue the argument of the gospel, how will they hear unless they, they have a preacher who's been sent to them? In other words, the, the implication is that, uh, verse number 3 there, special revelation is necessary for salvation. And, and here's where the rubber really meets the road for us folks. If we understand Scripture to be clear and true, and... I'm pretty sure we're on the same page with most of this, okay? Then we have some serious obligations to the Scripture because it's been given to us. If special revelation is necessary for salvation, meaning declaring the gospel of Jesus to sinners all across the world, then we are obligated to take what we know to those who don't know. And then number four... The Bible is of primary importance for knowing and obeying God. So if you just want to read the Bible to discover what particular philosophical, political, or ideological stance you should take on an issue and say, I'm going to believe this, if that's the limitation of your scriptural insights, then here's the pro- here's a problem with that. God did not give us his word so that we would know what particular stance to take on what particular issue. We do discover that, by the way, many places in Scripture. But he gave us his word so that we would know him and obey him. In other words, the biblical, biblical revelation intends for us, God intends for us through his word, not just to know what we ought to think, but to know what we ought to think, to know what we ought to say, and to know how we ought to live. Because if God spoke, and if God revealed himself, and if God invited us to know him, and then if God said, here's what you do with knowing me, we have an obligation to behave a certain way, to act a certain way, to engage a certain way. So the wonder of Christian theology, I think, is that we can know God better. The challenge of Christian theology is that as we know God better, we have an obligation to live out what we know on a daily basis. Does that make sense? And and we can't we can't we can no longer plead ignorance. We can never really plead ignorance in the first place because God gave us his word. But we will come to a point and there will be some tension points through a lot of what we're going to talk about where you look at the scripture and I look at the scripture and we realize maybe I'm not quite living that out like I should. And that's good. Because scripture is designed to teach us about God, and as we learn about a holy God, one of the things we're going to discover is that we're not Him. If you didn't know that already, we're, we're going to realize how far we fall short of Him. And where the gaps are between my life and my holiness and my obedience and God's holiness and God's expectation, theology is supposed to fill those gaps with a change in behavior. Does that make sense? And so as we work through the authority of Scripture, um, and then we work through who God is and some of the other subjects that we're going to deal with, my prayer is that it will be more than just an intellectual experiment. 
but that it will be life application. So, if you will, join with me in a word of prayer. Gracious Father, you're so much more wonderful than we could imagine. Every time I have the privilege to open your word and read it, or to prepare a sermon, or to work on a lecture, or to address a theological topic, I'm reminded of your greatness and your transcendence and your glory and your majesty. And Father, I pray that you would help me never to lose sight of how much more wonderful you are than I could ever imagine. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you revealed yourself to us. You didn't have to. God, you were not obligated to show us who you are. And yet, because you longed for a relationship with your creation, you did just that. You revealed yourself through creation, and thank you for that. Thank you that we can look out at the beauty of what you designed and made and see that you are and that you are creator and Lord. Father, thank you that you didn't just leave us with creation. Thank you that you gave us your word. And Heavenly Father, we need your word. I need it in my life every single day. We need it as a church. We need it as a body of believers. We need it as Christianity at large to recognize that there's an authority and there's a framework and there is a declaration of truth that is found in Scripture that is certain and that is complete and that is authoritative. We need that. I pray, Lord, that you help us to rest on that. Rest on that so that we can know you. Lord, we confess that we don't know you as well as we ought to. There are things about you that we need to learn better. And there are certainly uh, characteristics in your person that, that we need to know in a real and an honest sense. There, there are ways that we need to experience your forgiveness or your love or your peace or your holiness. Lord God, that we've neglected. We've neglected because you've revealed it in your word and you, you've given us your Holy Spirit. But, but we've kind of turned our back on that. We've ignored it. We've kind of distracted ourselves with all sort of other things. And for all of that, Father, we ask that you forgive us. And we ask that you help us come face to face with your truth and not, not just see it or read it or hear it cognitively, but help us to live it out personally, and relationally, and practically. Lord God, in our study over the next uh, weeks and months, uh, we're going to confront truth over and over again. Uh, sometimes it's going to be um, uh, controversial. Sometimes it might be difficult. Um, certainly, sometimes it will point out areas in our lives where we're flawed and where we're sinful. And Lord, when you do that, I pray that you would help us to express honest uh, confession and repentance, just like we've heard tonight, and be willing to acknowledge our flaws and our sins and our failures and know that there's not a thing about us you don't already know. And not a thing about us that you won't or can't forgive. And Lord, help us to be willing as your people to show that same forgiveness, mercy, and grace to others. Lord God, we come to you tonight as the God who has revealed himself in so many different ways. I'm thankful that in the New Testament you revealed yourself as great physician and healer. Lord, our prayer list reflects our need for you to be great physician and healer. I know of folks who have faced cancer diagnosis. I know folks who are recovering from strokes and folks who are dealing with death in their families and grief. I know folks who are dealing with uh, illness and sickness and disease. 
And Lord God, they need you. Father, in in your grace and in your power, you can intervene and heal. And if you should choose to do so, we'll give you glory and praise for it. Lord, you can also choose not to heal, but to let that individual, those individuals experience you in a very glorious and peaceful way, even in the midst of their circumstances and storms. I pray, Lord, that at the very least, you would give them a sense of your presence and peace and calmness, and may they know you in a much more real way going through what they're facing um, this week, this day, this month. Lord God, we need your peace as followers of Jesus. We look around us and we see all sort of things happening in our world that are troubling, whether they're political um, things or whether they happen to be about diseases like the coronavirus or possibilities of war. Um, Lord, we put those things in your hands. We're glad that we serve a God who is sovereign and in control. And we don't have to fear or worry. I love how many times in the Bible you say to your people, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For you're with us. You've promised to never leave or forsake us. And I ask God that you would give us a sense of your peace and calmness no matter what circumstance we may face or no matter what circumstance we may be watching others face. Lord God, I'm thankful for missionaries and evangelists and pastors and folks in our church who are going to go serve on the mission field and folks who we support as mission partners. I'm grateful for their work in sending the gospel uh, to different places across the world in our community. I pray, Lord, that you'd bless them, that you'd work through them, that you'd encourage them, that you'd minister alongside them, that you would uh, use, um, that you would empower them as they spread the good news of Jesus. Use them for your glory. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the ministries that are going on in the life of our church, the Wanda ministry tonight, our praise team that practiced, and choir that will practice. And just pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd bless those that are serving you in any capacity and use them as they share your good news, teach scripture, and encourage others to know you as Lord and Savior. And Father, we come to you tonight and we pray for the lost. Pray for my friends, and those in uh, my relational circles that don't know you. Lord God, I don't know what they've put in your place. Some of them, it might be a false sense of security. Some of them, it might be money, or it might be some other kind of idol. Some, it might be a false religion. I know some, it is a false philosophy. It's an ideology where they, they think there's no way that the God of the Bible could exist. So they've put something else in the place that you rightly deserve in their lives. Heavenly Father, I pray for them. I pray that you convict them of their sins. I pray that the gospel that they hear from our lips and uh, from and that they see in our lives would uh, bring them to a place of repentance and confession and salvation. Lord God, I pray that you'd send us out as your people, not just with a better understanding of who you are, but a more willing voice to tell others about your salvation and your work in our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would give feet and hands to our theology. Let us not just be um, thinkers of our faith, although that's very important. But Lord, let the thoughts we think and what we learn and understand invade the activity of our lives. And Lord God, may we share your faith, share your good news with those who desperately need salvation. Bring them to faith in you, repentance, and, and a new life. Heavenly Father, I pray for our politicians and those that are leading us in our nation. Uh, there's a lot of division and conflict and turmoil, and we pray, Heavenly Father, that 
truth will win out and that you would be glorified even in the midst of that. We pray that our leaders would, uh, would be wise. Pray, Lord, that we would experience an opportunity in, in peace and in grace to continue living out our faith and declaring the good news of your son, Jesus. Heavenly Father, I'm also mindful of the many different churches that surround us in our community. And I pray for their pastors and these churches that you would um, help them, Father, to grow in their understanding of theology and bless them as they share your message of hope and forgiveness with others. May we realize that um, if we're preaching the same Jesus and the same gospel, Lord, we're on the same team and we'll see one another in heaven one day. I pray, Lord, that we would uh, not be divisive within our, even our faith, but that we would share the good news of Jesus and be supportive and encouraging of those around us, churches and pastors and ministries. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your goodness to us. May you uh, give us uh, even a greater sense of who you are and your presence with us tonight as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Wilkesboro Baptist Church. For more information and resources, visit wilkesborobaptist.org. We are leading our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Come and join us.